Peter Zablocki's newest book, Bullets That Changed America, 13 Historic Assassinations, Duels, Misfires, and Murders, from McFarland Publishing, available now wherever books are sold. One gunshot by a single person could be powerful enough to move a whole nation. Well-known are the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, William McKinley, and Martin Luther King Jr. History, however, is littered with lesser-known gunshots that have had equally echoing outcomes. Some were small mistakes or misjudgments, others intentional acts that sparked events documented in our history textbooks. A single bullet serves as the catalyst for each of the stories in The Bullets That Changed America. We may or may not know who fired it, but we know each bullet's endpoint and the effects it had on America's trajectory, the wars, social movements, and political and economic paradigm shifts. The names of those involved may not to many be recognizable, but the events their acts precipitated are etched in American history. Bullets That Changed America, 13 Historic Assassinations, Duels, Misfires, and Murders, available from McFarland Publishing, wherever books are sold. Now, back to our show. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got? Well, today we're going to be looking at a um, not like another one of these pulp pop culture icons, right? That comes out there. Someone that I know you've been talking about wanting to do for a long time. You have like a real uh, fixation, know, real, fixation. Yeah, fixation. Sure, <laughs> I was going to say a little man crush, maybe, but something like fixation works too. All right, things you need. You really like this time frame. You like the whole um, black and white era. Basically, right. So we're going to be looking at the times and the life of Harry Houdini. So let me ask you this question. Uh, I actually pulled this up on YouTube today because I was trying to tell my son that the Jawas in Star Wars make a noise that literally sounds like they're saying Houdini. And and my son's like shot and stuff. Yeah, my son's like, no, they don't. And I'm like, no, they do. So legit, I went and I like YouTubed it and I just did like Jawa sounds. First of all, they have like a compilation of all of them from every movie, which is kind of insane that someone would That's take time to do that. But free time. It's like people yeah. who do podcasts on Houdini. Like who has that right, much free I guess, time? I guess, right? But sure enough, the Jawas do say Houdini. It's a thing. It's really a thing. All right. Anyway, <laughs> it was just a side note. A side note here, Tom. Harry Houdini, or really Eric Weiss, right? Eric Weiss, yes. Born March 24th, 1874. Died in mysterious circumstances, which we shall discuss yeah. in this in this podcast. Oh, yeah. On October thirty first, nineteen twenty six, he was a Hungarian escape artist, illusionist, stunt performer, uh, really known for his escape acts, and also very much against spiritualism. He was like not hardcore. a fan of spiritualism, big time, big time. Which yeah. is weird because at at the time, a lot of other escape artists, magicians. Would this, you know, again, turn of the century, they would say that they had powers, right? That they could like walk through talk objects. Talk to the dead or like. Talk to the dead or the spirits is what helped them. The spirits would help them do things and stuff like that and ghosts and everything. And he was like, no, that's not how it works. You would, you have like hidden lock picks or you can wiggle things out if you apply pressure certain ways. Like he was more and he, he was out there really trying to stop a big skeptic of those things and trying to stop them all also. 
Yeah, and, and I think we'll talk about the fact, I mean, he had lawsuits against different spiritualists saying like, no, you're fake, you're fake. And he actually made it his business, while he's already a really known wealthy person, he kind of made it his business to expose a lot of these spiritualists yeah. that he goes, there is no ghost, there is no um, special powers, like you just have to be witty. And he sued people for fraud, and he won a lot of these cases. He wrote books against them. Um, he had famous authors kind of argue with him publicly about this, which we'll talk about. And ultimately, this this kind of plays a role in his death because some people believe to this day that it might have been a group of spiritualists. Yeah, uh, that notable. Kill him, right? Yeah, that actually might have had something to do with his death. What do we got, Tom? Where does this guy start? Where's the beginning of Harry Houdini? What do we know about his you know early beginnings and youth? Well, he was born, like you said, Eric Weiss, right? He was born in Budapest, Kingdom of Hungary. He was uh, part of a Jewish family. His father was a rabbi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and his mother and his mother was, he was very close with his mother. That's something that you'll see a lot. If you do any research on him, a lot of pictures of him and his mother, um, when he becomes rich and famous, he buys his mother a, um, dress that was worn, I think by a queen of England. And like, he brings her out, out to all the relatives and she's wearing this dress and she's smiling. And he's like, this was like the greatest day of my life. So he's, he's a big time with his mother. He was one of yeah, seven children. Uh, he's yep. one of seven children, and they arrive in the United States in on in 1878. So you got to remember, we we still know the name Houdini today. This guy's like in the eight, he's from the 1800s. Like that's when he was born. Yep. So it's a long time ago, a long, long time ago. Yep. And it's when they come over from um, that they changed the spelling of their name, and he changed it a little bit too, and they wind up living in um, Appleton, Wisconsin, where again his father served as a um, rabbi. Rabbi, yeah, for a Jewish congregation there. And um, his family wound up moving to Milwaukee, and they were pretty—they were pretty poor when they were there. Yeah. And then um, they went from there. They moved to um, New York City, would live in a boarding house. And he was joined, and that's very kind of as a child where he um, grew up. He worked a lot of these small jobs, right? Just basically kind of like uh, pay off debt and stuff. And one of them was a trapeze, a trapeze artist, and that's yep. when he started calling himself the Prince of the Air. Because he actually was an aviator too later on in his life. He was a big time yeah. uh, pilot. Yeah, I know he was an athlete. He was an aviator. Uh, but trape- you know, trapeze artist, like that was his, that was the beginning. He was nine years old, and that started as like basically like a, like a public debut. But it was really a gig to try to help his father make money because in eighteen eighty seven, it was just his father and himself that moved to New York City and they moved into this boarding house because they couldn't even afford to bring the rest of the family yet from Milwaukee. So. He starts picking up jobs and winds up basically being like a circus act, you know, the prince of the air. And, and he helps make enough money for his father and himself to bring the rest of the family over to New York City. Shortly thereafter, he's a young kid. He starts to perf- uh, perform different magic tricks. And he calls himself Harry Houdini, essentially after a French magician, right? Uh, the guy's name was Jean-Eugene Robert Houdin. And Houdini, Harry Houdini... Uh, had this belief that if you add, again, misplaced belief, that if you add an I in the name, at the end of a name of something, it meant like esque, like, you know, like short esque or, you know, kind of like something. So he added the I to it. So it was Houdini, meaning like, like Houdin. As for his first name, it was actually stems from his nickname, right? Harry, which is a nickname for, from at least the nickname that his family gave him. So uh, Harry became Harry, and he became Harry Houdini. As a teenager, he is essentially taught this craft by another magician, Joseph Rin, um, at, a, at an athletic club in New York. And initially, he, he kind of doesn't work out for him. He's not a great magician by any means. And it's not working, yeah. Yeah, he performs in like dime shows and here and there, like shows up on uh, on the street, really. Even at some point, he 
doubles as um wild man in the circus which is like the worst job you could have in a circus yeah he wasn't doing escape acts yet for the most part he was doing mostly card tricks i think yep. i was reading a lot of card that was tricks another one and- of his names right yeah, anything to build himself. Remember, he's a showman, so it's anything anything to build himself and things of that nature. Yeah, it almost seems like what's going to stick, right? Like, all right, I'm the king of cards. But they actually said that he wasn't really that great with his card tricks, so that didn't pan out. And then his brother joins him. I, so this is at the time now. This we're talking like 1890s. 90, yeah, 1894, 95. Yeah, he's a teenager, and and him and his brother start experimenting with these escape acts, and you know they're getting booked here and there at these dime shows and dime museums and and sideshows and even the circus. And brother's name was Dash, was nickname at least. First name was Theodore. At Coney Island, right? They become they open an act as Brothers Houdini, where they're trying this whole escape thing, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, this is where he meets his wife, right, Beatrice Bess. Uh, Ronner? She was originally, um, Dash was like going after her at first or trying to court her, I guess you would say, first. But she wants to marry Houdini. He was madly in love with her. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, and the thing is, what's interesting too, if you read their story, is she was Catholic and her family was like very much against this um, eventual marriage. Yeah, Yeah, because he was Jewish. And after, um, after he passes away, she lives for like another 30 years or so. And when she passes away, against her own wishes... Her family refuses to bury her next to him because they refuse. They're so Catholic that they refuse to bury her in a Jewish cemetery, which is interesting because that was her wish. Like that was her husband and her yeah, family. That's what you want like, to go, yeah. yeah. Talk about holding a yeah. grudge, huh? So Bess Houdini kind of takes over from Dash and, and she kind of replaces him in the act. And they become known as the, instead of the Houdini brothers, just simply the Houdinis. And at that point, Bess pretty much becomes a stage assistant for the remainder of Houdini's career. So then in um, 1899, he meets and signs with a manager, Martin Beck, in Minnesota, handcuffs act, right? And he's kind of known for this one. Yeah. So, so yeah, Beck yeah. really started that. Beck really started to advertise him and really advise him, listen, let's focus on your escape acts. Forget about all these other things. We're going to focus on the um, just the escape acts. And within months, like, it really, he starts to become really popular. So he starts going on tours of Europe. Um, he does some interviews. And he's really starting to take off, and he gives yeah. a demonstration of how he can escape with these handcuffs at Scotland Yard. That's the big just, one. That's the one that makes That's the big one with Scotland Yard. And then that's also when he starts challenging other police forces around the world to listen, come up with something, and I'm going to escape it. Yep. And he succeeded in, like, the police didn't understand how he could do this, and then he just becomes booked, and he starts to make a lot of money. They say he's making about $300 a week, which is probably close. It's over $9,000 in today's money, so it kind of shows yep. you inflation right there. But um, So he's becoming super popular with these handcuffs, and now he's known as the Handcuff King. So this is his next, you know. That's his gig. His, his next right? gig is the Handcuff King. He's escape all th- all these things. And he does and this he, in he, Netherlands, Germany, France, Russia, all like, over the world. across yeah. Europe. And he's getting paid so much that he's actually one of the world's highest paid entertainers. Remember, guys, there is no radio yet. There is no TV yet. Uh, there's no movies. I mean, that's not even like a, motion pictures aren't even really a thing yet. Like this guy is just simply word of mouth becoming one of the highest paid entertainers in the world. And it all stems from the fact that, he, you know, he started challenging all of these different police stations. He's like, put me in handcuffs. Eventually, it got to like chain me up, put me in handcuffs, lock me in a box and then watch me get out of it. And he continued and continued and continued to the extent that he basically, you know, becomes super famous. Then um, he's finally, I mean, again, I feel like as I studied this, he's definitely has a lot to do with, he definitely has a lot to do with courts. He's always suing people or getting sued, interesting enough, um, or starting patents. So that way, like, I trademarked this, I trademarked this, like, and he would just sue people. 
But while he was in Germany, a police officer actually alleged um, that he es- escaped through one of his escapes through bribery. So Houdini sued him. Yeah, sued the guy, yeah. Well, you see how he won the case? This is the one oh, yeah, where Russia, he yeah. basically said to the, uh, the judge, yeah, he winds up. Judge, um, like, look, I could do won- this. I'll show you. I can do- I'll can. show you and I'll unlock the safe. And he unlocks the safe. Mm-hmm. He breaks into the safe. But he later says that this that the judge forgot to lock the safe. That's what That's it was. Yeah. Do it. But <laughs> whatever. Yeah. But, he, but he wins that case because of it. Because yeah, he tells the judge like, no, no, I could get out of things. I could, I could unlock anything. I this, this is what I do, right. yeah. And then he basically is like, I can unlock your safe. And the judge is like, fine, if you unlock my safe, like we believe you. And then he's like, yeah, the safe wasn't locked, but he unlocked it. Uh-huh. All right, so after that, he winds up returning. He's now he's he's like a made man when it comes to really uh, Europe, and in the sense that he has the money, he's got the wealth, he's got a title. But that's mostly in Europe. So he returns from Europe, and then what winds up happening is he. First of all, this is where the whole idea of a dress comes into play that you talked about, right? He buys this dress made for Queen Victoria and for tons of money and gives it to his mother and presents her to all the relatives at his big party. Um, And then in 1904, he officially returns to the U.S. after going back and forth between Europe and purchases a house um, in Harlem, New York City, right? And it is uh, it cost him $25,000, which is equivalent to about close to $800,000 in today's money. He creates his own publication while he's here. Uh, it doesn't really work out. In, in his publication, he really kind of wanted to just use it. He just talked um, about himself. He, yeah, he yeah. used to kind of promote himself and to attack spiritualists. So it didn't. They only lasted like two volumes. Yeah, um, and that, you see that. That's a lot of things. He said a lot when um, Houdini started getting on a roll. He started really talking. That's what he started to talk about. Like he would get himself like robbed up. It's all yeah. he just like went after his rivals because he was always there. Was a lot of other individuals at that time that would try to one up him or take steal his techniques steal that's one reason why he stops doing a lot of the handcuff tricks is because so many other people do it so he ups the ante and he starts doing these like much more intense um escape techniques which we can talk about like, the straight jackets the yeah um, i feel like we'll mention the mail the bags the, yep. obviously the milk can the milk crates and the um chinese water torture but he does all that piece people are keep on imitating his handcuff one so he's like well i'm not doing that anymore then i'm gonna go on and do something else and he's basically trying to make it so difficult so intense that no one else is even going to try it because it's so dangerous, which is what he yeah. started to do with some of these escapes. And actually what he, what's interesting too is what he does is as soon as he does this act, he often started his acts in, um, and did them in front of just a select group of people. So that way there was a witness and then he would trademark it right away and copyright it. Like, okay, this is my move. So if you want to do this move, you have to give me credit. And he actually made a lot of money that way, but also, you know, sued a lot of people that would try to like replicate what he was doing. Something similar, something similar. Yeah. And he was like, no, 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 I did that first. You got to give me credit kind of thing. Um, And he never claimed. So people were like, dude, you have to have supernatural powers. I mean, like they would put it, they would lock him up, you know, water filled, like you said, milk can. They would put him in like a coffin box, uh, nail it shut, put chains around it, put chains inside it and on him, drop it to the bottom of a river. Uh, and then he would emerge within a minute. And they were like, how do you do this? Like, you have to have natural powers. And he's like, nope, supernatural powers. Like, I'm just really clever. Like, that's how I roll. Um, I mean, he suspended upside down, right? In a locked glass and steel cabinet full of, like, overflowing water, the famous or infamous Chinese water torture cell. Um, you know, in a sense, he, he, you know, he kind of becomes the face of all magicians. And actually, that kind of, towards the end, becomes his big... Not job, but I guess role, right? Um, because he becomes the president of the Society of American Magicians, yeah. um, basically from 1917 until 1926, and he is the longest running president up to that point. Each president of the American, Ameri- you know, Society of American Magicians was only president for one year. 
he's the president from 1917 to 26 and he's continuously trying to like advertise it and go to other magicians and try to get magicians involved in the society of american magicians and try to create some credibility um for magicians it's almost like he's trying to make the idea of being a magician reputable for profession i would yeah, say well, he's right? making a business it's becoming a yeah. business like a business model for it like anything else yeah, I mean, it's, it's now the richest and longest surviving organization of magicians in the world. Um, they say there's like 6,000 members right now that pay dues um, and almost like 300 assemblies worldwide from what he started. Like, you know, we, this is a respectable um, position. Oh, my God. I'm, I keep on thinking of like the, some of the stuff that he did, like the elephant, we can talk about the elephant disappear. Well, he, mean, made it, he made Yeah, well, he, he, had a, he had to buy that trick. Yes, I that did see that. So he actually bought that trick from a um, another um, magician because again he was all about this. He was like, you know, something was really good, and um, that's what he did. He just made the he made um, Jen, Jenny the vanishing yeah, elephant. Was, this yeah, was yeah. in 1917, so he kind of just made it disappear on stage, and he would do that for a while. But again, like he never really stuck with some of these acts that long. And a lot of times, what happens after he would do it for a while, then his brother would keep on doing it. Like yep. a lot of like the, like the milk the milk. Um, can't escape and some of the Chinese war torture. He would do it for like four years and then, you know, on and off. And then his brother would keep on doing it. His brother kept on doing these tricks into the 1940s. Yeah. Like his number one thing was vaudeville. And, you know, vaudeville could be a podcast in itself. Uh, ultimately, you know, you would have theaters in, in, you know, different cities, whether they were big cities like New York City or Boston or even smaller cities. Um, pretty much wherever a city could put in a theater. Again, this is like 1900, 1917. Um, you have silent films that are just coming out. This is a whole new thing. But vaudeville is key. If you had a theater in town, you would you would basically have uh, the theater owners book these vaudeville acts, and these high, you know high paid performers would come in to do the different shows. Whether it was magic tricks, whether it was dance routines, whether it was comedy things, and and you know think of like Abbott and Costello kind of vaudeville. You know, like this idea of just different acts doing you know doing their thing and entertaining people, and that's kind of what he became the most notable for. Uh, people wanted to book his act in these vaudeville theaters. Let's talk about some of his crazy escapes that this guy did. I mean, he almost died numerous times, but one specifically, times. right? Several times. Yeah, well, I guess I started one of the beginning ones, which was um, the Daily Mirror Challenge, mm-hmm. which had, took place in London in 1904, where there was basically, and Daniel Hart was a locksmith, and he said I he spent five years making these special handcuffs. And Houdini actually accepts the challenge and he decides to perform this at a matinee. And um, about 4,000 people, about 100 journalists come to this, you know, events all hyped up. It's like super people are really excited about it. And this, um, the escape attempt that dragged on for over an hour. Um, he kept on coming in and out. He, um, well, the they thought and, he wasn't going to be able to do it. This, there's so much controversy because they're like, dude, his wife yes. really helped him. Well, some people say his wife helped him. Other people say he actually could have got out of it in like, five minutes but he was a showman so he was making it like like take longer but basically i want to um he did ask for the cuffs to be removed so he could take his coat off because it was so hot and they said no because then you're going to see how the cop how the cuffs get unlocked We're not and these are like that. special made cuffs that have like a six yeah. six inch key to unlock yeah, just like, right. exactly yeah so he takes out a pen knife and cuts off his jacket using his teeth Yep. And then um, basically, um, and it goes back behind the curtain, right? Because they yeah, see him. The you see behind yeah. the curtain, so you see what he's doing, but like you don't see the intricacies of it. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah. 
and his wife comes on one and gives him a kiss. And that's when they say, oh, she was high in the thing in his mouth and also gives him a glass of water. I think at one point, it's like, oh, the, yeah. the water had the key in it. But he said the key was six inches long. You're not going to be able to hide that yeah. um, or anything like that. But basically, he winds up eventually um, getting out of it. He comes back from the curtain. After about an hour and 10 minutes, he emerged free and he was exhausted. He even said it was the most difficult escape of his career. He broke down and cried afterwards. And the crowd was so excited. And again, this is like pre, I don't think now people sitting there for an hour and a half or whatever, watching a guy. Yeah, watch this guy behind a curtain, like, behind a curtain trying to take handcuffs off. It's not going to be really like, I don't know, people are going to be like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Dude, phones would be out in three seconds. People would be playing like, you know, Candy Crush. People were so like. Coming up on 5-Minute News. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Gone, went crazy for this. They put, they threw him. They were cheering. They threw him on their shoulders. They're like, "Oh my god!" Because literally every second that he's doing, they're just watching. Like, "Oh my god, what's going to happen? What's going to happen?" It's just crazy, like how the intention spans like shifted since then. Crazy. And then you know the milk can, uh, can escape kind of follows that. That is like him upping the ante. Um, and basically, the premise here is very simple: Houdini handcuffed and then sealed inside an oversized milk can. That is filled with water and made his, you know, the idea is they place this behind a curtain again and boom, let's see if he gets out. He's in a sealed milk can uh, full of water and he's handcuffed and people are trying to figure out how he's going to get out of it. And well, um, drowning. yeah, or drown. And that was the key. That was supposed to like add the key, like the another level of excitement because it's yeah, like, the, well, right, but, yeah. he gets he out or he dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one or the other. You're, even gonna, yeah. you're gonna see him live or you're going to see him die, which is also like. Morbid. I'm not sure if that would also fly. Right. 2020, 2020 standards, you know? Um, yeah. And I mean, and this was this was just a big thing, you know, like added a little extra element of suspense. Um, eventually, they modified it because they wound up making it a little harder. So they put the milk crate um, or can was then in itself locked inside another wooden chest, which was then chained and padlocked. So the idea was like, okay, you're in a water can that and you have all these cuffs on and that's closed and then that's in a wooden chest which is chained and padlocked and then you have to somehow escape from it and he did this numerous times like this was like his jam uh, eventually as you mentioned earlier uh, his brother kind of picks that up um even after his death and that's kind of his brother's signature move was this milk can escape the, the milk can escape yeah but he kind of because houdini kind of one ups this around 1912 when he creates um the chinese water torture Yep. Where his feet is basically are locked in stocks and he's lowered upside down into a tank filled with water. There's like a metal cell around him with a glass front so they could, so people could see him. So that's big too. Like he's underwater, but people can see him the whole time. Yeah. He's, and he's and, upside down. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so he was enclosing this cage and eventually he makes it even more difficult where I think they do, um, what do they do? They put him in like a straight jacket also. So doing yep. all this other stuff. While in water, while, while upside while down. Water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he, and he's holding his breath the whole time. I think a lot of times he did this with the um, milk can escape too. He had people like he would challenge people to try to hold their breath as long as he did, yeah. as he was trying to get out. So he, he could hold his breath for over three minutes. 
crazy. Well, going back to the milk escape real quick, what's interesting here is this was another case where he kind of brings us to court because um, other magicians started repeating this. And he went, he basically sued some of them and says, no, this act is copyrighted. Like, I, I invented this act. You need to pay me to do this act. And he winds up settling out of court in 1906 with another magician who actually agrees to publish an apology. Like, yes, I'm sorry, you did this first. Like, he's a businessman, you know, first and foremost. He does these tricks, but he's like, no, no, no. I'm going to make money off of anybody else doing the same similar tricks. The Chinese water torture, where they also made it more difficult for him, is they actually started putting him up where he's upside down in this big water cage, right? In a straight jacket. But then they would actually put in another cage within it that basically like would almost render him like unable to move. It was like a smaller cage within a cage. And even though this was often advertised as the Chinese water torture cell, uh, he never actually referred to it as such. Right? He called it the upside down. You know, the first time he did it was in Berlin. And he continued doing this over and over again. This became kind of like another popular one until his death. Then you have... Suspended straight jacket escape. I mean, that's kind of self-explanatory, right? He's like, all right, suspend me from my ankles in a straight jacket from a crane on top of, you know, from a super tall building. This actually, this was interesting because the first couple of times he did this, there was like heavy winds when he's up there at these tall buildings and it started throwing him around so much that he literally just kept on hitting the side of the building and like almost knocking himself out as he was trying to do it. So as he after, as he like continued this act, they're like, all right, like, you know, while we hoist him up by a crane up to this big building, let's actually connect like a wire to his leg. And every time, you know, the wind would actually like move him close to a building, this wire would like draw him back so he could actually complete his trick without, you know, like banging his head against the wall. It's just I thought it was kind of interesting. There's video of this. Apparently you could see it. Library yeah, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's um, videos of Houdini doing these. Basically, he's hanging from. Yeah upside down do thomas edison we did a podcast on that thomas edison is the reason we have houdini's uh recorded voice uh the reason we have houdini really you know videos of early stunts like that's all thomas edison helped us out with some inventions all right so overboard box escape this is a cool one one of his famous this is one of the stunts he would do um he escaped from a nailed and roped uh, packing crate after it was lowered into water so again it's that threat of drowning uh, he first performed it in New York's East River, which I don't think you want to go in the East River. What did you Nowadays, notice that actually the police didn't let him do it? I think it was yeah, the they forbid him from using it on one of the piers. So he had to hire a tugboat and he invited the press on a tugboat. And then just he went it that way because they were said, no, you can't do it. But he was locked in handcuffs, leg irons, nailed in the crate, um, which was roped and weighed down to 200 pounds of lead and was then lowered into the water. And he escaped in 57 seconds. So he found his way out. How? I, was, I don't understand. I don't know. He, 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 he had magic. I think he just lied. But um, <laughs> the crate was pulled to the surface and it was found still to be intact and everything. And he performed his stunt many times. He performed a version of it on stage and um, they had specially built like tanks and stuff like that. And this kind of inspired him to do his next one of his last like really famous ones, which was his buried alive stunt, which the first time he did it in Santa Ana, California, he almost died. Yeah, he was this buried was alive. Because he was bare alive, but he was bare alive with no casket in a pit six feet under. And yeah. he basically slowly dug his way out. And he became exhausted and he panicked and actually had a call for help. Barely. He did break the service. He got out technically. Yeah. Well, his, his hand got out, right? Yeah. That's, that was it. And, and, yeah. And his assistants had to pull him out because he passed out. He fell unconscious. And he said it was, you know, basically the weight of the earth was like on top of him, just killing him the whole time. So when he does this um, after this, 
Well, when he does it afterwards, he's doing this to expose a spiritualist, right? An Egyptian performer named um, Raham Bey, who said that he used supernatural powers to stay in a sealed casket because he didn't have to breathe, whatever. And he's like, no, you're lying. I'm going to stay in a casket longer than you. And I'm going to say that it's I can do it through breathing techniques, not from no supernatural powers. But this is when he did it. After that, after that first attempt, every time he did it, he was in a casket or a box or something. He didn't just do like buried, buried. Yeah. Actually, one of the caskets that he would use to uh, to repeat this particular stunt uh, was used to transport his real body from Detroit the, to New York. The bronze City one. Yeah, because the, yeah, the yeah, like they had nothing else available. It's kind of crazy. It's like, all right, well, let's take the stunt. On top of that, obviously, a few things here that we kind of just briefly touch upon because I don't feel like they really deal much with any. But uh, he did, you know, start a movie company and actually made a lot of different, not a lot. That's an exaggeration. He made some movies, you know, and kind of tried his... He's a businessman, so you try, try to dip his toes in the film business. But this is such – the film business and the movies overall at this point are silent movies. It's such a – you know, it, like it's in such infancy, this business, that I don't blame the fact that he winds up quitting. He's like, there's not enough money in this. There's one full-length uh, feature movie that was supposedly his best. And then uh, because it was made from nitrate film back then, so it was like super low survivor rate – Right. Film historians basically thought this film was lost. And then, of course, there's one guy somewhere. Right. Always some private collector. That's like, well, actually, I have this film. And the Houdini Museum in Scram, Pennsylvania, which is the Houdini Museum in the world. The directors of the museum begged this private collector, like, can you please show us to show it to us? So he actually brought him in and did a screening for them. They're like, oh, my gosh, like this is the lost film. You know, that's a full length feature of Harry Houdini. It's 71 minutes, which at the time for the times was a super long film. And they begged him and begged him if they could somehow, if he could somehow sell it to to Turner Classic Movies, which this guy finally does um, in like 2015. He winds up selling it to Turner Classic Movies. They spend millions of dollars restoring it and show it to the public for the first time in like 96 years in March of 2015, which I think is kind of cool. What else? As you mentioned earlier, private life. Uh, he was a pilot. He absolutely loved flying. It became kind of like his hobby towards the end. It's probably this whole like adrenaline thing he's got going here. You know, it's like the Tom Cruise of his time, I guess. Um, but I think what we really need to cover here and spend some time on this is kind of how passionate he was about debunking any spiritualists, right? Like yeah, psychics, yeah. mediums. He's like, no, these people are fakes. And he literally made it his business to like ruin some careers. So he started attending this Santa Santos, right? Accompanied by a reporter and a police officer. And he kind of hides and, you know, wears disguises. And he basically sits there and debunks them. He's like, all right, uh, this person's BSing because of this. Boom. And this person's BSing before, because of that. And he winds up publishing these stories on how he's debunking them in different newspapers. And eventually he even winds up writing uh, a book in which he winds up exposing some of these other people. It's almost interesting, like, I don't know what it was like. Was he scarred by something at some point? Because this really seemed like a mission of his, you know, a magician among the spirits. Well, it was his mission. Like, that was yeah. one of his books. Yeah, he just he just want he just didn't like them for it. He just said no. Look, he had little patience for anyone who claimed to have supernatural powers. Like, no, that's not how it works. So he even offered people a ten thousand dollar reward if you could prove that you had psychic powers or any psychic phenomenon, which was a huge amount of money back then. And, um, you know, he, he, he even um, testified before Congress in support of a bill um, that would outlaw pretending to tell fortunes or rewards. Fortune for, uh, tellers in Washington, D.C., yeah. right? 
Yeah, so he was like, he, he did not want anything to do with these people. He did not trust them and stuff like that. And he even, I guess we can talk about it now, like after he dies, we talked we talked about it earlier. Oh, the message like to his secret, wife, right? Secret message to his wife would be like, you know, if there is a way to communicate after death, this is the message. This is the only one thing I'm going to say. And then supposedly it's like, what was it? Re, um, Roosevelt Believe, was it? I believe yep. supposed to say. Someone did find up saying it, in the, but they found out that that person found out the code somehow or using other clues was able to figure it out. So she, um, after 10 years, she stopped doing the seances, but they still do them all the time around the country. On Halloween, they have these Harry Houdini seances all the time. If you're in Halloween, which is the anniversary of his... Uh, yeah, and he died death. on Halloween. Like, what are the odds, right? Yeah. We know Sir Arthur Conan He's the author of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, at the time, an extremely popular author in the world. And he used to be friends with Houdini, but Doyle actually uh, believed in spiritualism and he, and he believed in spirits and he believed in the afterlife and all that stuff. And he refused to believe any of Houdini's exposés. And and he basically said that in a, privately and eventually publicly, uh, Doyle would say that Houdini really was a powerful spiritualist medium. Like there's no way he could be doing what he does. And therefore, you know, there is some there was supposedly some paranormal abilities that he possessed. And. Um, Houdini took offense to that and and actually basically the two of them this is this most known magician in the world and at the time probably one of the most if not the most popular um, author in the world basically battled it out in different newspaper editorials like nope you're lying nope you're lying no spiritualism is wrong no you're a spiritualist it's kind of intense in a sense let's talk about his death i feel like i mean that's a big yeah his death is probably just as famous as his life right so right there's some witnesses to this event right that takes place but it kind of understand you have to um, backtrack a little bit to what happened a little bit beforehand right yep it's not just what happened october 11th 1926 i think right yeah is that that the chinese water torture where he gets hurt yeah the chinese water that's what happened so on 1926 that's just one of his he's um while being shacked and while being shackled in his water torture cell in Albany, New York, the um, he was struck in the leg by a piece of like faulty equipment, and it hobbled. And he hobbled his way the rest of the show, and he found that he kind of fractured really badly his left ankle. Mm-hmm. So because of that, he was and against doctor's orders, he continued his tour and traveled to Montreal, where he gave a lecture at McGill University. And then October twenty second, he invited so many students to visit him in his dressing room, right at the Princess Theater, and he his ankle was sore, it was still bothering, so he was. Sitting on a couch. To say it was like hunched room. over, sitting on a couch. Yeah, hunched right? over, yeah. And at it's like random point, student. Yeah, well, a student named James Gordon Whitehead, right, arrived and asked Houdini if it was true that he could resist hard punches to his abdomen. And it's something that Houdini did claim, as long as he was like prepared for it and stuff like that. So according to witnesses... Um, this guy just started punching about, him. Yeah, well, not that guy who asked, but this other guy, Sam... Um, S- 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 Similovitz. Similovitz. Yeah, it was a, right? a witness. Um, said that the rumors were true, and then Whitehead started delivering four or five really hard, forceful um, blows to his abdomen. Well directed. This guy, you know, this kid, knew how to punch, and he just wailed on him like four or five hard times right in the stomach. And Houdini was still reclining on the couch, and no time to prepare for the punches. And he kind of like shrugged him off the punches, like trying to look like a tough guy. But um, it definitely, it, you could tell he was in considerable pain. And that same evening, he began to complain of discomfort, stomach cramps. And his condition only got worse when and then he boarded an overnight trainer for Detroit to continue to run these performances even after his temperature rose to 104 degrees. Yeah. Like nowadays, basically, if this was nowadays, he would never be allowed to do any of that stuff. They would take him right to the hospital. But yeah. this is still, you know, in the 1920s, so it's a little bit different. And um, 
so he they suspected appendicitis and instructed him to go to the hospital, but he still says no. He's um I think his temperature goes up to 106, right? Yep. And the thing is, he like collapses. At one point, he collapses during yeah. the show. Then like they revive him. Yeah, and he's like, I can do this. He, he finishes it he, and then collapses at the end. Yeah, that would be his last show at the Garrick Theater. Yep. And then um, that's his last performance. He's taken to Detroit Hospital. They prepare for surgery. They remove his appendix. They saw that it ruptured several days earlier, and he was there was nothing they could really do because they could tell it already. Once your appendix ruptures and it poisons your insides, yeah, you have you don't it. have much time. You got time. Quick. So he he clung to life for a while, but then he eventually dies on October thirty first with his wife and his brothers by his side. He never had kids, and um, so the cause of his death was listed as a ruptured appendix um, at the time. And that's what a lot of doctors said, but they said it's actually kind of rare for that to happen like that, like a traumatic appendicitis, yeah. were very rare. Um, but the insurance company paid out saying that he died an accidental death, but obviously there's a lot of... Um, yeah, he got double indemnity or whatever it's called, right? Double, yeah. Yeah, yeah. indemnity, a but there's a, there's a lot of um, also ideas that he was actually poisoned by spiritualists. Yep. And that, and that kind of led to his death, but... Who knows? Well, besides being poisoned by spiritualists, there's some evidence to suggest that the actual student that hit him was a spiritualist and or was in like cahoots, I guess, with spiritualists. And supposedly he was sent by them to To deliver this blow and not to kill him per se, but just to like hurt him, you know, and, um, and, you know, and to this day, there's some people there's books written about this. Like there was a spiritualist hit that beat him and essentially yeah. led to this. But yeah, even in 2005, yeah. It doesn't happen often that you could rupture your appendix from blunt force. Like no, it needs to be like easy. a car crash or something, you know? There's absolutely no evidence that could connect this student to any kind of criminal plot. So basically they're like, hey, listen, Houdini died because of this. And there in 2008, um, Houdini's nep- grandnephew, I think, um, yeah. actually I gave permission to like exhume Houdini's body. Like, let's check it out, see if he was poisoned. And some people are like, dude, just let it be. And even though he gave permission, no one's ever taken him up on it. So Houdini still lays in New York City Cemetery. It's, it's in Queens, yeah. And then this is, you know, kind of what you said before is that, you know, Houdini told his wife like, all right, hold this seance. And then, you know, on the anniversary of my death and I will, if it's possible, come back to talk to you. And she does this for like 10 years. Um, every single anniversary of his death on Halloween, she holds a seance and it never panned out. And finally, she's like, ah, forget it. Like, I can't keep on waiting for this guy. And she kind of moves on um, because Houdini's ghost refuses to speak. But to this day, as you mentioned, people show up and try to get Houdini's ghost to talk to him on Halloween. Interesting. Yeah, he's still a pop culture icon today. Like, oh, of course. Like, yeah. see, there, there's a pop popular culture, but also there's a whole bunch of... Um, I think Adrian Brody even played him on a, on a TV miniseries in like yeah. 2014. But there's still there's a Houdini Museum. Like obviously he did all those things, and it's a name that people know. Like even today, people know who Harry Houdini is. They know that. Yeah, name. like right. You say you Marilyn Monroe, boom. You know who I'm talking about. I say yeah. Elvis. You know who I'm talking about. Harry Houdini. I, it seems like people just yeah. know what I'm, who I'm talking about. You know, it's like a name. Yeah, it's a name. He didn't really live that long. I mean, no, this only guy could have done so more, so much more. Yeah, I mean, his wife lived to 1943. She winds up dying from, uh, I believe, a heart attack. What else you got? Well, I do. You know, we do. We whenever we do people, we kind of do these um, fun facts. So one that I did find that I thought was interesting, that I think a lot of people probably would know, is that he actually assisted American war effort during World War One. Oh yeah, yeah, he did tours, right? He, he did tours, but he also like he um, was big on. He totally supported U.S. involvement, even though he was uh, born in Hungary. 
but also he did raising money for the war effort. But he also um, they took American troops and he held classes, and um, he showed them how to escape sinking ships and to um, get themselves like from um, from ropes, out of ropes, handcuffs, yeah, handcuffs yeah, yeah. and restraints in case they were captured. So he showed a lot of his like moves, things he would do. He actually like showed gave these like American showed these to American soldiers so that if they ever were captured and tied up or if they were in a sinking ship, what to do and stuff like that, which I thought yeah. was interesting. He's like giving them these skills. Yeah. You know? And again, he was one of the pioneers of, you know, what eventually becomes a common practice in World War II, where you have uh, famous stars going out and entertaining troops, you know, whether it's yeah. eventually Korean War, Marilyn Monroe or World War II at Hollywood stars. And, you know, the same thing, Woodrow Wilson, you know, basically used him and he, he actually winds up canceling his tour uh, during World War One, and basically just devotes himself to entertaining soldiers and raising money. Like he goes from base to base to base, which I think is kind of cool. Those people you have who didn't, you have his life, you have his acts, and then you have his death, and then like all well, everything that goes with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that pretty much covers Harry Houdini, or as Sums the Jawas would say, Houdini. No, you stop saying that. Dude, I'm telling you, <laughs> they say Houdini. Watch Star Wars. Okay. Houdini. I'm sure I'm George Lucas. Uh, right. George it was Lucas like a, it was like a subtle that. or not so subtle, like. Hey, I like Harry Houdini kind of thing. I thought they just made all those noises by like banging pieces of metal together. They did actually. I saw them making of. It was pretty cool. Yeah. So I don't. But okay. Anyway. If it sounds like Harry Houdini, you go yeah. with that, Pete. Yep. I know. Please. Anyway, so we're we're kind of uh, we're getting close, Tom. We're getting close to our hundredth episode. I mean, I can't believe yes. we've been doing this for. This is our ninety sixth episode, which doesn't include really? the short lectures. Like that's a that's a that's a lot of episodes. That's a lot of time we've been doing this. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of time. But it, what's interesting too is like here we are, and we're like, dude, we should do this, and then you'll be like, we did that already. Oh yeah, we did. <laughs> like no, how about this? Yeah, I think we did that too. Yeah, that's a hundred episodes a lot. So we're trying to plan something, uh, something special or something cool for the hundredth episode. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll keep you guys updated if this actually pans out. If we, because we have so many plans that it usually fall through. Because you know, because <laughs> then like Monday, you know, like the weekend turns into Monday, and then we're like, well, that sucked. Like <laughs> back to work next time. Next time. But yeah, we'll we'll figure something out. But until then, everyone, thank you so much for listening and tuning in. We really do appreciate it. Hope everyone has an awesome week. If you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are there to answer any of your questions. Make sure you click that subscribe button and enjoy your week, everyone. See you next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.